Good morning, church family. The true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Elohim, Adonai, Yahweh. I want us to take a few minutes as we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 to think about what we're going to read here. And if you would stand as you open your Bibles for the reading of God's Word. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, And I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to, going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am 
who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Our Heavenly Father, many times we forget not only how great thou art, but your name is above all names. And as we have considered and just briefly touched on your many attributes, your character transcends our own small, incomprehensible way to view you. I pray now, Lord, that your light would continue to shine throughout this season. We are so thankful. And may it not just be a meal on Thursday, but may it be an opportunity for us to greatly appreciate all we have and are because of you. We thank you for your word. And we just pray for our dear pastor as he presents this truth that we may complete our time of worship with you. Amen. It's good to be back with you. This is a, um, a delight to be able to uh, share God's Word with you. It was uh, a wonderful time last week as we've been doing these uh, series, these messages on the attributes of God. Who is God? And God is defining Himself not as we perceive that he is or what we may make up in our own mind who he is, but actually who he is. Because I think sometimes, apart from the scriptures, that is the guidebook that we go to to find out who he is, sometimes we can draw wrong conclusions about God. And not only wrong conclusions, but even false heresy, false truth in terms of um, the things of God. So it's a delight to go there. It was so much, and then to have it manifest in worship and celebration of this God. That's the end objective, understanding who he is. Then we celebrate him. And I really had a, a wonderful time just talking about the availability of God last week, the closeness of God, that he's here, that he wants to interact with us, that he wants to do life with us. I don't know about you, but I've had, if I can say this in absolute reverence, I had a great time with God this week. I had a great time just interacting with Him. I actually took the message I heard last week that I preached and took it to heart. And I said, you know, I think I said the truth last week. And I believe God really does want to enjoy us. And He wants, 
us to enjoy the presence of Him and uh, the delight. And so we just had a great time. I hope you have. Uh, He was here. He was everywhere. He's omnipresent. We know that. So He was available. I just hope that you didn't get distracted horizontally and just missed out on a wonderful time with God this week. It's His desire for us. This week we look at a different aspect or a different attribute of God, and that deals with His eternality, the fact that He is eternal. This is next to the last message that we'll share in terms of the attributes of God. Our pastor will share with us next week dealing with the sovereignty of God, that He is over all. If you've been listening, and I know that you have been, that you'll realize that these messages cannot help but interact together because we're not trying to dissect God in such a way that you only see part of Him and try to conclude all about God. You actually have to see every aspect of God. And we learn that in His personality, these attributes of God interact with each other, His justice and His mercy and His love and His righteousness, and the fact that He's all-knowing, the fact that He is uh, in control of everything, the fact that He is eternal, and He operates from that perspective that He is eternal. So the, the beauty of this is that probably you should do uh, go back over all of these messages and listen to them in a tighter space and say, oh, that's my God. You, you remember that uh, film clip we did, we've done it several times in the church and talked about uh, all the attributes of God. And this uh, African-American preacher was talking and he would say, you get to the point after he talked about some of the characteristics that he's he's my shepherd, he's my savior, he's my friend. Ah, he said, that's my God. That's my God. Do you know him? Do you know him? I can almost say it like him, but that's the way he'd say it. That's why God is sharing all of these things with us. He wants you to know him. I want you to know him. He is a God of revelation so that you can perceive who he is. So today we look at the fact that he is eternal. That means that in interpreting that internal, that he is self-derived and he is permanent in his existence. That's hard. This one is really, I mean, all of them have been hard to grasp, but I have a hard time understanding the eternal existence of God that he is from himself. I remember when Jan and I were, I was in the military and we were teaching, I was working with the, uh, with the church on base there and we were actually teaching some fourth grade boys, military boys. And I, the, Jan wasn't with me that week, but one of the fourth grade boys said, I said, yes, I said, where did God come from? I said, you know, I I don't have time to answer that this week, but Mrs. Jones is going to be with us next week, (laughs) and she'll answer that for you. (laughs) I mean, we don't know anything in life apart from God that has everything we know has an existence. I mean, it has a beginning, has an end, but God has always been. Honestly, that drives me crazy. I mean, it just does. It is so unlike me. And so, God, will you just defend the fact that you're eternal? And the Bible doesn't do that. 
In fact, all the Bible does is declare who he is. He doesn't have to defend himself. I want you to know who I am, and this I am eternal. God is eternal, which means that he, is, he always was, he always is, he always will be. He has no beginning, no end. He has always been exactly the same, and he will exist forever. We always read in the Bible that he's eternal. By definition, the word eternal means without an end or without a beginning. That's who God is. He has no end and he has no beginning. He has just always been. That's what it says in Genesis 1, isn't it? Verse 1. In the beginning, God. It doesn't say before the beginning what it was or where he was or what he was doing. It just says in the beginning, God. When life started for us in existence and creation, the extension of who God is, God was there. He was the one, the great cause. He was bringing all of that about. We see that in many places in the scriptures here. We read about it in Revelation chapter 1, this time speaking within the Godhead, Christ himself. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. We read in Revelation further in Chapter 2 and verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, the eternal one. In um, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, God is repeatedly referred to as the eternal, everlasting God who alone is immortality. Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses, actually, we're going to talk about Moses in a moment, but in Psalm 90, we read, before the, fount- before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Before there was anything else that we may know of today, God was there. In Exodus chapter 3 that Kevin read for us, it just simply says, uh, he said, well, who shall I say? And he says, I am. I am that I am. We'll talk more about that as we look at this. The theologian Charles Hodge says it this way, with God, there is no distinction between the present, the past, or the future, but all things are equally and always present to him. With him, duration is an eternal now. We don't know anything like that. We, we just know time as it moves on in that, but God lives in the eternal now. Time is something he's created. That's not who he is. He is eternal in that sense. I like what uh, uh, Stephen Charnock has said when he talks about God. And we often talk about, uh, sometimes we think of eternity as a place where God lives and where his people will one day join him. And Charnock actually corrects that. He says, God is his own eternity. It is not the eternity in the place that God lives. God is the place where eternity lives. (laughs) That's really interesting, isn't it? Eternity can't be outside of God because that would, well, you see the picture. So when we think of God who has always been, he is the self-existing one. He is the being of beings. He's immutable, 
He is constant. He never changes. He is faithful. He fulfills his promises because that's what he is and what he does. He includes everything, every part of our lives, now, yesterday, and even tomorrow. So we look at this passage here, and hopefully we'll discover what God has in mind for us and how his eternality relates to us. How does that apply to us in everyday life? Understanding then when we speak of his eternality, talking about even though we think of time and shortness or longness and so forth, whatever that might be, that's irrelevant to God. He doesn't operate that way. He operates in the fact that he is. I am, he said. I'm self-sufficient, self-existent. My immediate presence is all I operate in. It's not contingent upon anything or anyone else. His plans are not a contingent upon any circumstances. His promises that he has, they will be. That is exactly the way it's going to be. It is eternal. It is constant. It is God. He stands ever-present, unchangeable, completely sufficient in himself to do what he wills to do and accomplishes what he accomplishes. Now, I'm thankful that God is eternal. I'm thankful that he doesn't change. And I'm thankful that God knows everything. He's not, ever, he's not ever caught off guard. He's not ever confused. Now, I can say to you that there are times I am caught off guard, that I don't know what's going on, that I am ignorant. And in my ignorance, I rest in the eternality of God, that he knows, and that he will take care of whatever the situation might be. And that's our hope, is that from our thing called time and existence that we know, that we have to know that there is someone, and I don't want to step on the message next week, which is the sovereignty of God, but we do want to know that there is someone who knows what's going on, is in control of what's going on, and will accomplish what he desires in relationship to life. He'll do that. That's significant to us in terms of the promises of God. If in no other area, he says, if you believe in me, I'll give you eternal life. He's got to be the author of that eternal life. He has to be the destination of that eternal life. He has to be the provider of that. I have to trust him in the midst of that. So in the context of life, the eternality of God is a point of great satisfaction for us to rest in him. Now, turn to the passage then that we had read for us this morning. And this is a familiar story to you. You know it well because it deals with um, God's people and what he's going to do in relationship to his people. Um, The children of Israel had been in captivity for 400 years down in Egypt. That's something that God even prophesied about. He said, this is exactly what's going to happen. When he talked to Abraham, he said that uh, they will be in a foreign land and they'll be there for four generations, 400 years. The end of that 400 years is now upon them, and God is moving into history, into our time, to accomplish what he had promised that he said he would do. And many times when we look at this passage, we want to make this passage about Moses. We wanted to make it about his reluctance. We want to make it about the fact that he saw a burning bush, and he was curious about that, and he pursued that. And we, want to, we want to talk about all his... the. the the fact that he became humble and he became dependent. All of those things are true. But really, this passage that we've read this morning is not about Moses as it is about God himself. 
He's trying to define who he is in the context of time when he operates from that eternal perspective from his throne, even in heaven. So we see then that already the burning bush has taken place. Um, Moses became curious about that. And we know about Moses. Moses had been the one who was uh, saved miraculously and because they were killing all the, the children. And, and uh, Moses was then put by his mother and guarded by his sister and found in the, bo- uh, the, uh, the basket and in the river and uh, raised then by Pharaoh's daughter. We know all about that, and for the first 40 years, even as a Jewish person, even though they were trying to kill all the Jewish boys, he was actually raised in that uh, great environment of wealth and education and prosperity, everything that you could ever imagine. Even though the one who was nursing him was his own mother, and you can be assured of the fact, was telling him stories about his heritage, but that was the first 40 years. And then the, uh, he realized that uh, his people were being mistreated by the Egyptian people. He saw this very incident taking place and he took matters into his own hand and he killed the taskmaster that was abusing one of the um, Israelites. The next day, someone he observed and said, are you going to do with me the same as you did with that taskmaster? Moses then became filled with fear and he fled. He ran into the desert. He was uh, then married and Jethro, his father-in-law, and was a priest out there in the Midianites and that's where he was. Now, the end of that time, 40 years have passed. 40 years in the uh, influence of Pharaoh and his family, 40 years on the backside of the desert. And all the time, this is interesting, God was preparing his servant in the midst of that. Moses didn't know that. Moses thought, this is the rest of my life. I'm going to live on the backside of the desert, and that's the end of my life. I'm going to have these children. But then the burning bush takes place. He's curious about that, and then God speaks to him. He said, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. And I love the fact that he, did, he talk, talks about what Moses is going to do. He talks about what he's going to do. The time has come to set my people free, and I want you to go down there and just be my spokesman for me. I'm the one that's going to do it. It'll be through my strong arm. I'll do that, but you be my spokesman. He finally became convinced that this is what he should do. I'll go. Moses is willing to go. Somebody has broken up Moses' life in three categories. When he was in Egypt, he thought he was somebody. And then when he fled, he thought he was a nobody. And then the last 40 years of his life, we learn what God can do with a nobody if he surrendered unto God. And I think that that's the way we want to be. So Moses is now willing to go. And if you'll just look with me, beginning at verse 13 of chapter 3 of Exodus, What I want you to do is to see a context in which the eternality of God is demonstrated, how it's carried out in its practical application to our lives. Now, you may have come thinking, I'm going to explain to you all of the nuances of eternal, the eternalness of God and how I know where God came from and how it started. I don't know that stuff. All I know is, is that it's very practical in terms of my daily life and how it works out in that. So we read in verse 13, then Moses said to the Lord, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. Okay, I'll do it. This is what you want me to do. I'm going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you that they may then, uh, now they may then say to me, 
What is his name? And what will I say? Now, it's not as if um, that he was going to come up with a new God or, uh, or uh, some kind of an understanding that they didn't have about God. He said, I'm coming there in the God of your fathers. It's the same God. But what they want to know about him, now he would be coming back after 40 years of being away. Some may recognize him, others may not. But really what they want to know is, what do you know about God that we would give you the right to speak to us? What authority do you have? What revelation has been given to you? What insight has been given to you? And so when I go up to those people, I'm willing to do that, God, but I'm going to have to declare to them something about you that they will know that I truly represent you. And so God said, I'm willing to answer that. I will tell you then. This is what you tell them. God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. This is not the first time that God is acting as a, uh, this sovereign God or this um, eternal God. But it is the first time that he's defining himself in the context of the affairs of men as this. This is really the word here is Jehovah. And we uh, get the word Jehovah from the, uh, there are the consonants that are there, and then the, the, the vowels of Adonai, which means Lord, are combined here because they, they were fearful. The name is somewhat mysterious, and I'm giving you some explanation. I'm not sure that that's all that it was. But then those two w- words were combined together, the vowels and the consonants of that, and then we get our word Jehovah. And what Jehovah means then, he is, and it's not a title, it's a personal name, like my name is Mike, and that's Jan, and that's Bob. Well, this is Jehovah. This is my personal name. And I, as such, I want you to know who I am as Jehovah, and I am a personal God that has always existed. That's what it means. I am. I have no beginning, no ending. All that I've already described is really within that name. And this is what I, you just tell them that. I am now, I am that complete God who is in complete control, who needs nothing, who depends on nothing, who has access within all of his own power and creation. I am that, that's who I am. Tell them that. Now it's really kind of interesting because when he tells them that, and we'll see that he says that several times, That when he tells them that, that is a name that is used so often in the Old Testament. Do you know that the name Jehovah, and how do you know in your Bible when you're reading, according to the translators, how do you know that that's referring to this God, this self-sufficient, self-existing, always no beginning, no end? How do we know it's referring to? It's always in capital letters, L-O-R-D, capital letters. And what that's telling you is, this is the God that we're talking about. There's also times that you'll have little letter, L-O-L-O-R-D. That's not the same. But when you're talking about this God, we're talking about it capital letters in that process. Now, that's important because particularly as you read through Exodus, in fact, throughout the rest of the Bible, you're going to now see, and Moses is going to see, how God from his eternal perspective operates within mankind. So please understand, God is not becoming something here that he hasn't always been. He's just revealing something about himself that they didn't know up to this point. So when, he went, so when Moses went 
to the um, people of, of the Israelites to tell them who he was, he said, God is going to declare himself to you in such a way you've never seen before. And he's going to serve you in a redemptive fashion. He's going to be a deliverer to you in that fashion. That had never been exposed up to this point. That's who he was. And so he said, that's all you say. You just tell him I am. So when we see him then, Moses, saying that he's willing to go, and he now has the message of who he's representing, he goes actually to three groups of people here, three assignments that are given to Moses at this time, and each one is giving an expression of who this eternal God is. First of all, he says, Moses said, verse 14, what will I say to the sons of Israel? So in verse 15, go furthermore, uh, God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel. So the first assignment is in terms of what God's great plan is for them, that nobody really knew up to this point. All they knew that there was suffering, there was pain. They were uncertain if God even knew about it. They were uncertain if God was going to fulfill his promises. But now's the time that all of that's going to take place. And these Israelites were going to learn, even though they didn't capture it in this first message, they're going to learn that God knows what's going on, that he does care, that he does have power. He can resolve issues. He can deliver. He can redeem. And he can bless. That's what they're going to learn in this process. But first of all, he just simply says to these people, notice in verse 15, the Lord. Now, the Lord there, if you look it in your Bible, all capital letters, Jehovah, this one's as I've already described him, I'm not going to keep doing that. He's the eternal one. Uh, So he said, the eternal one, God, Jehovah, the God of your fathers, this God that you talk about all the time, mom and your dad talk about that. It's It's a familiar name. You know, this is the one that I'm coming to. And it's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These are the, these are the, uh, the fathers of the covenant. So I'm coming to you in the recognition that I have a relationship with you. You've known about that relationship. You've known of me as the Father. We've walked along with each other in that process. I'm the one that's that's the fulfillment of the covenant. I'm the one that made that covenant with you. I am here. And And that's all he says to them, except this. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So whatever is happening here in relationship to the Israelites, not only applies to them, but it applies to all generations. This is going to be the memorial name of God, the Jehovah, this one who is uh, all-knowing, fully capable, who is a redemptive God, who is a delivering God, who is a blessing God. I will be recognized, I will be celebrated as this great God. And I think that we see that, of course, when we read through the Scriptures, that's exactly what took place. So when we, when we think of this, all right, God, so clearly, what was your objective, not only with the Israelites, but with the Egyptians as well? Turn with me to uh, the seventh chapter of Exodus, and I'm going to tell you that God's objective was, was to declare who he is in both of these cases. Now, notice in, in chapter 7, And uh, again, he's talking about the deliverance. This is what we find in all the book of Exodus. Verse 3, he says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, 
that I may multiply my signs, my wonders in the land of Egypt. Who's at work here? God is the one at work. It's his signs. It's his wonders. It's in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts my people, the sons of Israel, that the land of Egypt be great, be great judgment. The Egyptians, verse 5, shall know that I am the Lord. Capital letters again, you see that. I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Now, we do know for a fact that when all of the plagues were given at the time of bringing about deliverance until he finally expresses himself by the death of each firstborn, we do know that that was an attack upon the God system of the Egyptians. And what he was really trying to show the Egyptians is this. They're useless. They can't deliver you. They can't protect you. They can't provide for you. You're trusting the wrong thing. And when all of their gods were defeated by this Jehovah God then they would recognize that. But it's really interesting, if you go just a little further in Exodus, well, what did God's people learn in this process? Turn with me to the 14th chapter of Exodus. And, and really, what you really should do on your own sometime this week is just read through Exodus, and you'll see God's intervention in the lives of these people. That's what he's saying is, this, yes, this is who I am, But as such, in this powerful position that I'm in, I'm choosing to be a deliverer for you. Now, look at verse 30 of chapter 14. Now, this was at the time when their backs were against the Red Sea. They'd already been delivered. The Passover had taken place. They were leaving Egypt, and they were on their way. But then they go there. They get to the Red Sea, and their backs are against that. God has made a deliverance for them. God provided for them at the expense, again, of the Egyptians because they died. Verse 30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore when Israel... Israel saw the great power with which God had used against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord. Notice the capital letters there. I I won't point it out anymore. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. He had twofold objective. And, And it's not that just God wants to show off and tell you how powerful he is and what he knows and and, and where he is and, and everything. No, he, he wants this to serve in such a way that we will respect who he is and worship who he is. Now, does that work? Look at verse chapter 15. I won't read all of this, but I should. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. And this is my God, and I will praise him, the Father, uh, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariot and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choices of the officers drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your hand, O God, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And I just go on here. And in my Bible, I've circled everywhere that it says, Lord, he, Lord, you, your, 
And I find, and I don't know how many are listed there. I should, uh, I should have counted those. But let's just say there's probably at least uh, 40 or 50 times in reference there. Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying they got the point. They got the point that they knew who God was, and they are now celebrating that in that fashion. Now, back to the storyline that we're in in the third chapter. Or, I have two more points. As we, the pastors were talking before, and they said, uh, this could be a great illustration on eternal. When the pastor says, I have two more points, you know, there's an eternity before he says, amen. <laughs> so now you have an understanding. But we are going to get last two points right here. So come back with chapter 3 of Exodus. You see where he's going with this? He's just declaring who he is. He's not defending it. He's declaring who he is. So the first group he tells, and that is the, uh, the, the uh, sons of Israel, that he says, the Lord, Jehovah God, the God of your fathers, the God of the covenant. That's my name. It's going to be a memorial name. And then in verse 16, he says, go gather the elders of Israel. And he expands his definition at this point because he said, together and say to them, the Lord, same as he said to the sons of Israel, the Father, the God of your fathers, the same, the familiar one, the one you know. I'm not bringing up another God. I'm just describing something about him, something that he has made known to me, a new revelation in that sense. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's your covenant God. He has appeared to me saying, this he didn't say to the nation of Israel, but now he's saying it to these leaders. I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I will bring you up, uh, I will, in verse 17, so I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. And this is exactly what was promised in the 15th chapter of Genesis when Abraham received the covenant relationship with God. He said, I promise you that land. You're going to have to go down for 400 years in a foreign land. But now he's coming back and he's operating from the now, even though they had gone through time-wise 400 years. But with God, he says, this is the time. I'm going to do that. This is the right moment to bring that about. And he really is saying is, he says, I, I've heard about your affliction and I'm going to do something about it. And it, what I love about this in verse 18, it talks about these leaders, they will pay attention to what you say. He didn't say that about the sons of Israel. He did say it about the leaders. They're going to pay attention. The people want, you know something? I think that was prophetic because the people are the ones that complained. Oh, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Who do you think you are? What have you done to us? We're bad and bad. And they complained all the way through the wilderness. But the leaders believed in Moses. Now, there's a third group. This is not only to go to the leaders, but the third group, he says, I want you to go down, verse 18, to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord, now he's saying it differently. He's not talking about a familiar God to them. He's talking about a, not talking about a covenant God to them. He's talking about the one who is absolutely and eternal and in control and can, do, and can uh, do as he pleases and will accomplish his purposes, he said, the Lord. Now, you Egyptians, he could, we could just put a footnote there. You Egyptians really don't know what I'm talking about right now. You really don't know who I am. And in fact, all you know is I'm the God of the Hebrews. 
I am their God. They know who I am. And in fact, they don't only really know who I am. They're going to learn a lot more about me. And really, so are the Egyptians in this process. He said, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please, and I love this. Initially, he makes an appeal to Pharaoh. God doesn't have to make an appeal to anyone. He can do as he jolly well pleases. You know that? But he is at least giving them an opportunity to be wise. They were incredibly uh, foolish. I was going to say stupid, but that's a granddad word. So don't say that. The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He's the one we have this personal... And then in verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. Now, this is where he becomes uh, 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 prophetic. Now, we say prophetic. That's because it's, uh, he's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. He doesn't operate in the future. He says, I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. What, this, is, this is it. They're, going to ref- they're not going to let you go. They're only, the only thing they're going to understand is my hand, my outstretched hand, which is always referring to the power of God and what he's going to accomplish. My outstretched hand is going to strike Egypt with my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. After that, he will let you go. Now, in history, the Egyptians were recognized as the strong arm of the nations, And now he's using that terminology against them. He said, they think they're strong. They're really not. I'm the one who is in control. I'm the one who is all-powerful in this process. So then he goes on to say, now that's the end. That's what he's going to do. And we do see that. They, they, uh, several times, Pharaoh starts to do something. Then he says, I'm not going to. And God hardens his heart. He hardens his heart so he can accomplish his purpose of revealing who he is. That's his whole objective in that. For the Egyptians... And for the Israelites. So he's showing them that no one or no group of people is greater than I am. That's what God is saying. And now if you'll just look at the, as he goes on to this, he says, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now he told them, if I go back to, and you don't have to turn there, but if I go back to uh, Genesis and um, He talks about in chapter 15, verse 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. 400 years before this time, God knew exactly what was going to happen because he operates in the eternal now, and now we see it right here as it's being talked about in terms of what God is going to do. He says, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptian, and that shall be that when you go, you will go, you will not go empty-handed. They came out with great wealth, and they, they appealed to the Egyptians. They said, yes, take what you want, get out of here. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who loves, who, who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. You will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. This is God said. Now, so God decides at this time to make known the understanding of his eternality, his self-existence, his self-sufficiency. The fact that he operates with no dependency, he operates independent of anything and everything else. And what he chooses to do is, is to do it in a context that people can understand. And you say, well, I'm not a, a Jew. I'm not in 
the Egyptian being in bondage to the Egyptian. But you know something? The same thing that he says here applies to us in every situation. That's why he says it's a memorial from generation to generation. God is saying simply these things. Please understand, God is saying, from my sovereign position, I know what's going on in your life. I know the struggles you're facing. I know the uncertainty you're facing. I know the cruelty that's happening. I know what's going on. And secondly, he's saying, this is what he's saying, God is the one who chooses to reveal himself as to what he means by this name. And this is what he's saying. Not only do I know what's going on, but I care very deeply. I have deep compassion what's going on in your life. And then he says, not only do I know and care, but I can fix that. And I will. And through that process, lastly, I'll bless you. Many times in my life, I've experienced the eternality of God. But nowhere have I experienced it as much as redemption that he's brought into my life that he saw my condition. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was powerless to do anything about it. God so loved. He cared. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that there's a way of deliverance. I'll make a way. There's a way of escape through the finished work of Christ. And not only that, if I have freely given you these things, not only in Romans 8 does he say that he gave his son, but he gave his son and through whom he will bless us with all things. We're not just saved, we're blessed of God. The eternality of God in terms of how he chooses to reveal himself takes place every time someone is saved. He reveals himself in that fashion. Ultimately, there are other aspects of this even in the end times. But right now, we celebrate the eternalness of God by thanking him for the redemption that he's given to us. So I want us to think back For some, it'll be further back than for others, because you were saved a long time ago. I remember when I was saved. I remember being in that church in Maitwan, West Virginia, right across the road from Untug River, across from the Hatfields and the McCoys. My step-grandmother was a McCoy. But I remember being in that church there in Maitwan, and Dr. Rees would be preaching, and he'd talk about Christ, talk about the need of salvation, and I would physically grip the seat in front of me for concern and fear. I knew I needed deliverance. I knew I needed freedom. I knew I needed the blessing of God upon my life. And you know who won that tug-of-war? God, God just overwhelmed, and he said, I am who I am, and I'll do what I want, and what I want is you, and he saved me. He forgave me. He gave me free life and new life, and he blessed me, and he's been blessing me ever since then. I don't ever want to forget those days of desperation, those days of emptiness, days of brokenness, and for some, great shame and guilt. God has overcome all of that as the great Jehovah God, the great I am, the great deliverer. He's overcome all of that. 
And he said, please, please, don't ever forget what I did for you. 